The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net or you can call him at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Good morning, Don. Good to see you. Uh, You've got a pretty special guest here uh, with us today. Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for investors uh, group. Boy, you're bringing in the heavy hitters today, aren't you? Oh, yeah. It's the third quarter now, Scott. And you know what? We're fortunate enough. Philip came just before the summer after our our second quarter. And uh, you know what? We just thought everything should be pretty boring over the summer. Not much would happen. And uh, clients were not all that happy with the performance in the second quarter because, you know, things went a little south, lots of inflation worries. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, things started to get a lot better. Uh, July, August, I'm not quite sure. Kind of, you know, things went up about, oh, at least half of what they had lost. And, and then it seemed like, oh, here comes the third quarter statements. And it started to trickle down, down, down. And even the last two days of September, there's some uh, down days. And uh, funny enough, right after that third quarter was done, then we had some of the biggest days in terms of market performance in Day, back-to-back days in October. Uh, but anyway, at the end of the day, lots of volatility, lots of things going on. And as, again, thanks for joining us, Philip. And I just wanted you, if you could uh, kind of say, you know, what actually went on in that last quarter? Yeah, certainly. And, and first, thank you, uh, Don. And thank you, Scott, for having me. Um, you know, third quarter was a lot like the second quarter where we had a lot of fears about how far the central banks would go in terms of raising interest rates to keep inflation or try and and lower inflation uh, and what that might mean for economic growth going forward. So you're right. We saw the start of the summer, or start of the third quarter, actually quite positive. July through the halfway uh, through August was quite nice. We had a good rally. We regained about half of the losses from the start of the year. And then Jackson Hole, Wyoming, kind of set everything down the wrong path, where Jerome Powell, chair of the Federal Reserve, reiterated his his intent to rein in inflation as best he could. In an eight-minute time span, he said inflation 45 times. He quoted Paul Volcker. He basically took a sledgehammer to the inflation discussion, and that set the markets a lot lower. Um, Now, what's interesting is when you look at September, September was actually normal, a down month, but September typically is down. It's the worst month of the year. So um, leading into September, one of my key messages was, look, be prepared. We usually see volatility. There are midterm elections coming up. September typically is the worst month of the year. Don't be surprised if we get some volatility. Volatility was probably a little bit greater than what we thought. But as you point out, Don, the first couple of days in October, were a strong rebound. It's hard to say whether we've seen the bottom or not, but largely the third quarter was a replay of the second quarter in terms of economic issues and market activity. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, for us, that sees the market every day. Now, we're a bit of a disadvantage, I would actually say, because to be honest, we should always look long term. However, being in the business we're in, we get to see it, you know, daily. Um, And even for that matter, when Powell was had his discussions that day was like looked like a medical heartbeat line. 
the market went down. It started off even, went, then it went down when he started speaking, then it went racing back up, and then he started talking about inflation, then it dropped like a, like a stone. And it's abs- that's just one day. And this is, again, if you look at clients, okay, we're doing long-term financial planning. You, you, I, I don't understand how day traders could have a stomach for this kind of thing, because there's so much ups and downs that can happen. But, you know, one thing at the end of the day is everybody talks about risk. And what exactly is risk? And, you know, I'd love to just hear your viewpoint of what your, what your definition of risk is. Well, it's a great question. Um, the way I think about risk is risk to the downside as well as risk to the upside. It's it's what um, is the probability of being wrong in one direction or the other. Um, so that's the way that I think about risk. Most people think about risk as just downside risk. What's the probability or possibility that I can lose money? Where I sit there and say, well, if we have a 5% target for the S&P 500, what is the risk to the upside? What is the risk that we could be wrong and we could be up 20, 25%, 30%? So that's how I look at risk. It's not, it's not just one direction. It's, uh, it's in two directions. And you have to assess the risks from a portfolio management perspective. Are the risks greater to the downside than to the upside? And if so, then you have to position yourself accordingly. So that's, that's really the important thing about risk. And Don, the way I look at it, at it over the coming 12 months, you're absolutely right. We need to think more long-term. Right now, the ups and downs of the market is, is indicating that there's a fair bit of, of uneasiness, uncertainty. And typically when there's a lot of uncertainty, that's a, usually a good time to be thinking more long-term and ignore the day-to-day moves because over the long-term, we te- do tend to see companies do well and profits move higher. So I'm looking at the risks right now and saying the, the greater risk in some areas of the world is to the upside. And that's something I don't want to miss. Yeah, or the greatest risk with opportunity costs for those that would do not participate in the upside. Then they think back and say, well, boy, I missed it. You know, and, and there's that whole, you know, buy, buy a high, sell low kind of mentality because it all of a sudden they don't want to miss the ride while it's too late by the time they see it go up it's already gone up 20 or 30 percent and then they can't stomach the down so then they sell when it's low and then as uh, one of my favorite uh people that i see a lot of charts is carl richards and he's got a beautiful little chart and i have it right in my office and it says repeat until broke because that's that's mm-hmm. the mentality and this is what keeps us as financial planners this is the investment segment of our financial plan and we talk about, you know, as, as all the listeners know, we talk about tax planning, investment planning, insurance planning, estate planning. It's all part of it. But the investment piece is important. And we just want to know, how does it work? And this is a, a very complicated area. And, and first of all, how do you keep up with all this, Philip? Well, I would say you know, 15 to 20 years of building uh, screens and charts and data and models that... Uh, that you, you rely on as an indicator of, of where we are in the economic cycle, where we are in the market cycle, and where the opportunities might lie. So every day I get in, turn on my Bloomberg, uh, look at what economic uh, releases are out that day or that week, update my models, and, and then try and put that jigsaw puzzle together. Uh, and, uh, and it's a challenge. Uh, you know, Don, it, it is a challenge because day to day, things can fluctuate. Uh, imagine, I think you know, a good analogy is think of it this way. We all have good days and bad days. Well, imagine if I attached a value to you, you woke up and, and you had the sniffles one day. Oh, Don's value just fell by $50,000, right? <laughs> Next day you wake up and you're feeling good. Oh, Don's value just jumped by $100,000. Imagine if we had to do that. Well, that's what people are doing with the markets these days. 
rather than thinking, no, you know, Don is a productive guy. He's a great financial advisor. He does well for his clients. And over the long term, he's going to continue to add value. That's what we should be focusing on. Yeah, you know, that's a great analogy. And unfortunately, the markets don't have a cup of coffee for those bad days. No, exactly. <laughs> they, they need a little bit of a jolt. And so right now, we're, we're looking for any signs of optimism. Every time that Powell comes out and says something that might be a little less hawkish, meaning he might start to pause on interest rate increases, the market jumps on that. You know, if we see actually, ironically, the market is looking for weaker economic data right now, because that would be a signal that the Fed or the Bank of Canada is near the end of the rate increases. And so when you have bad data, it's actually treated as good these days. Isn't, isn't that remarkable? That, that's what you actually look for now. And, and go back eight months ago, and none of this mindset was there. No, exactly. And, and eight months ago, we were in a different environment. Uh, eight months ago, inflation was lower than where it is today. It was heading higher. But starting the, to go, yeah. Exactly. But, but the economies of Canada, the United States, uh, and uh, yeah, I would say you know, Europe wasn't as bad as it is today. Um, but we were in a better position today. You know, we're heading into a weaker environment, but here's the key thing. Markets are forward-looking mechanisms. So the downturn that we've seen over the last six months has been pricing in the economic risk that is likely forthcoming over the next six months. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I actually question, you know, how much is, you know, inflation is a thing we're all trying to tackle. That's, that's the number one priority. And, and to be honest, I think the governments have realized that they weren't very proactive back in December, January and February when they could have been increasing rates. And it's like they caught, so, oh, geez, I better do something about this. And then they started raising them in June. Now, it's a little catch up and I'm sure it's having its indication of, of having it's working, you know, seeing housing prices fall, you're seeing, you know, the markets come in line with that, but is it really working for all inflation? The reason I ask is there's gotta be the supply side, certain parts of inflation is not controlled by interest rates. And I'm thinking Europe right now, as an example, I have a, just happened to be playing hockey earlier this week. And one of the guys is going over to Netherlands and they buy a lot of starch. Well, the price of starch has quadrupled because they get a lot of starch from Ukraine. The price of heating oil or heating a person's house that would normally cost, you know, $400 or 400 pounds or 400 euros is now going to be 2,500 euros to heat a house. And I don't know what the answer was, but certainly increasing interest rates isn't going to help that side of the equation. Oh, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and that is... Uh, those are market drivers that are out of the control of the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada or the European Central Bank. But what they're trying to do is, is control inflation in other areas. And really, if a lot of this inflation came by rapidly increasing the money supply, which created this wave of consumption, then you need to unwind that to help ease inflation in certain parts. You mentioned housing prices. Yes, we're seeing it with, with used cars. We're seeing some food Inflation actually is, is subsiding. Lumber prices are down. Copper prices are down. So there are pockets of disinflation that I think the blend of the two will, and, and we can see it. I can point to half a dozen indicators today that are suggesting that inflation will be lower 12 months time from where we are today. That doesn't eliminate all inflation. As you point out, energy is an issue, but it, it will work to stem inflation in pockets of the economy. 
We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Our special guest, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for Investors Group. Call IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. Don, you've got Philip Peterson with you today, Chief Investment Strategist uh, for IG. Some pretty uh, interesting information here. Yeah, no, it's great to have again, Philip, here. And it was an interesting book that I was in the Globe Mail. I was just doing a bit of a review. And it's just by Michael Malbausen. It's called The Success Equation. And basically, in this book, it analyzed luck and skills. I'm sorry, luck versus skill in both sports and investing. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to just read through this. This is kind of interesting because I'm sure there's a lot of people that think, well, you know, how much luck is involved in investing. And again, you know, for those play different sports, some days, if you're a basketball player, it hits the rim and goes in and other days that you got the perfect shot and it rattles out and it just drips and it doesn't go, you know, and we all have that. And in fact, it was kind of interesting. They looked at NFL games and they rated it. If if it was a hundred percent luck versus a hundred percent skill, it turned out after going back a few years, 52% was based on skill. 48% was based on luck, which again, makes me feel good because in my football pool, I have done very poorly. So I'm just not lucky. It has nothing to do with the skill side of my, on the equation. And actually, there's actually a lot more skill involved in basketball games and uh, even less in hockey as a coincidence. But, you know, the, at the end of the day, it's the best players versus the medium players were getting closer There wasn't that one superstar. No, there's a McDavid, say, in hockey. But again, McDavid versus the median was a lot less, say, than Gretzky versus the median hockey player back 20 or 30 years ago. Or going back even further, say, Gordie Howe. And so there's just more information. So relating this to investments, the best money managers, there's so much information that they get. Now, the average investor now has more access to information because of the internet, um, these type of shows, you know, all sorts of things. So they have access to things. And it turned out that, funny enough, in the investment arm, there seems to be a fair bit of luck in the short run. And and we see this often with the do-it-yourself investors that, and I had a client, I remember uh, just over about a year ago in the pandemic, that client happened to throw some money in something that was more or less in high very very pandemic stocks just happened to get lucky and put it in this and all of a sudden they thought they were very good investors and it had done like a hundred percent that year and but again it skewed the average too dramatically for the three-year and five-year average because when you have one big year like that all of a sudden the 10-year return looked not too bad either can you comment on philip on how much luck is involved versus process versus long-term and kind of go with what I'm trying to you know, say here with this book. 
Absolutely. I, I think that over the short term, luck has a lot to do with it. Uh, and that's because the markets are unpredictable over the short term. And short term, I would say is, you know, it could be three months, could be six months, uh, could be three days. Uh, and I've seen the same thing, Don, where I've, I have friends that would randomly buy a stock because they heard it somewhere and it goes up and they think they're an expert on it, um, but they don't understand it. And I don't begrudge anyone that's made money. I'm good for you. Sure. Uh, but, but to do that repeatedly in a short time frame, consistently over a longer term uh, is extremely difficult. And when we look at the studies on what drives the differences in portfolios, it's not necessarily security selection. Uh, and this is the old Brinson Hood study from, from the 90s, uh, where they looked at pension plans and mutual funds and so on. They said the real, the determinant of the variability or the difference between portfolio A and portfolio B or why one portfolio did better than the other is the asset allocation. And here it's when you're looking at the fundamentals of an index or an economy overall. And that requires process, that requires discipline, that requires recognition of the differences in attributes between one index versus another and why one is positioned to perhaps do better over the long term. Again, it's not over a short term, over the long term than something else. Um, so yes, you know, uh, I would say there was a huge element of luck and overconfidence in late 2020 and in the first half of 2021 with the Reddit boards, Wall Street bets, you know, Barstool Sports, you name it, all these these uh, day trading investors, we call them the bro traders that would show up <laughs> and talk about how easy it was, yeah. how easy it was to invest because look, I'm going to buy this and it's going to go up. Well, that's a bull market. Anything you touch will go up. Do that in a bear market. Now that requires much more skill. And, and this is where you don't hear about these things anymore. You know, we're, we're not hearing about crypto nearly as much anymore because guess what? People have lost money. No one wants to brag about how much they've lost, only how much they've gained. The discipline comes in recognizing that you know you need to be patient with your investments. It's not what happens day to day. The volatility day to day can swing you one way or the other. Again, you know Don has a bit of a sniffles. Oh, his value just went down fifty thousand dollars, right? You know that you can't bet on that. What you do is, or what we do, is rely on on the research that's been developed over my career to identify. Um, deviations across asset classes that open up opportunity and then capitalize on that over time. So, and that's not saying I'm going to double my money. It's saying I'm going to try and, and put it myself in the best position to generate the best return possible. And even when you do that and you go through all this research and the process doesn't mean the next week it goes up. Oh, absolutely not. And, and this is the challenging aspect to my job is, is this week we can be talking about a certain segment of the market and it could work against me over the next week. And people will say, oh, you were wrong on that. <laughs> well, you need to give me a little bit more time than just five days. Let's, let's see it play out. I could be wrong, but we won't know over five days. We're likely know over you know, 12 months. And then if we're wrong, figure out why, adjust and move forward. And I'm going to let uh, you pat your own back here, but I'm going to, because I know a little bit of, about you there, Philip, and you help run a, a competitor's portfolio in al asset allocation. And I believe what you told me that your performance was one and a half percent better because of moving money around over a 10 year period of time than had you not been involved in it. 
Can you explain how that worked? Right. So it was a model portfolio based on, it was an asset allocation portfolio uh, where what we did was look at the better relative opportunity set um, on a quarterly basis. So again, you know, it's not sitting there saying, what are we going to do today? You don't necessarily have to do things today. Trends emerge over time. So it was over uh, the total time period that I, that I ran this model was about 11 years. And uh, in making moves from U.S. equities to Canadian equities or Canadian equities to fixed income or things like that, you know, adjusting based on the where we are in the economic cycle, where we are in the market cycle and the attributes of each asset class. Yes, you can provide um, value over the benchmark. Uh, and it was roughly about one and a half percent annually. That doesn't sound like a lot, but you compound one and a half percent over 10 years. And now, you know, it makes a big difference. So it's not trying to swing for the fences. It's more, well, I'll say this analogy as a colleague used to say, because we're not trying to throw that Hail Mary pass down the road. We're trying to keep, you know, uh, hit singles and doubles and keep that ball in the middle of the fairway. Mixing all the sports <laughs> analogies that you could imagine. That's what we're trying to do. Oh, my. Well, you know, that extra 1%, just to put in perspective, if you had $100,000 and you invested and you got 10% without you and 11% with you, just 1% made a difference of $24,000 added to your portfolio. And that's only 1%, not 1.5%, which would have been, again, probably about 36000 approximately. So, yeah, that's is a lot of value. And, you know, I guess... Some at the end of the day, there's some something to be said of people saying, "Well, if I go to an index fund, I'm not paying fees. Well, you're not getting any active management, also." And so, my what I often tell my clients is, "Is okay, you're going to be going up and down with the market. There's nobody, and particularly now when there's tons of volatility and lots of opportunity during bear markets. Um, I, I my feeling is this is where you're really earn your stripes. Exactly, and and look, I. We use index funds in our portfolios, and I think they have a place in portfolios. But the challenge, anytime that I, I receive that question, is absolutely, you can you can pay. Uh, index funds are, are very cheap to manage. Um, you get all of the upside. At the same time, you get all of the downside, right? There is no risk mitigation in that at all. The challenge that I, I would say is, okay, but when do you not want to own that index? When do you want to start pulling back from U.S. equities because the U.S. dollar may be overvalued or U.S. stocks might be overvalued and, and you could be in a period of years where U.S. equities underperform other asset classes? Will you know that? Right? And that's part of the value that you know, portfolio managers bring to the table is that there are times when Canada is more attractive than the United States or Europe is more attractive than the United States or the U.S. is more attractive. Will you know, will your index tell you when that is yeah. and likely no. So no. you get what you pay for and you could be stuck. I'll use the example of Canada from, from like say 2010 through 2017, really only generated in that period, it was extremely weak in terms of the performance. And I think it annualized it was maybe 2%, right? So you were sitting on dead money. It was a terrible investment. You paid nothing to be in that index and you got nothing in return. Whereas if you had been, uh, if you had been with an active manager who said, no, you know, we actually like the U.S. a little bit more, we're going to add more to the U.S. That's where the value added really comes in. Yeah, and and we have a a solution, and we have a few solutions that do exactly that. And I know um, you're 
you're hands-on on this solution. And so just for the listeners, as an example, this one, one solution may have US equities, international equities, emerging markets, some ETFs, uh, low volatility investments, private equity, private debt, fixed income, Canadian pool, and even cash. So there's a, a mix of everything. And this is really what diversifying is all about, is, is not trying to take one area. In fact, say the US is an example, there would be value investing, growth investing, small cap investing in core. And so you have separate managers on even on the US. So it's, it's quite sophisticated, but then you're coming across and in tilting this to say, okay, we should have a bit more here versus there. And so coming into the third quarter, going to put you on the spot here, Philip, what, what changes are you looking at making this uh, quarter? Well, I'll say some of the things that we're looking at and, and what we like, um, perhaps you've, you've picked up on it in, in terms of the conversation we've had today. But when I look at U.S. equities, the U.S. dollar uh, that has been on a phenomenal run this year, really appreciated against the Canadian dollar and most major currencies out there, looks expensive. Over the course of the next, say, 12 to 24 months, we can lay a scenario where the U.S. dollar starts to weaken. As a Canadian investor, that's a headwind to U.S. equities. At the same time, when we look at the valuation in the United States relative to Canada and other areas, it's, it's, there's a fairly wide gap and the U.S. seems fully valued, whereas Canada seems cheap. So at this, uh, one of the things that we've been doing and, and are likely to continue to do is trim back some of our U.S. exposure back to Canada, back to Europe, back to emerging markets, as well as to fixed income, as well as to bonds. Uh, because bond yields now are at levels that we haven't seen in 15 years. They're actually paying us a coupon, um, and that's quite attractive. And so when we look at the risks, going back to what we talked about earlier on, the upside risks versus downside risks, we believe there's a benefit to trimming some U.S. equity exposure to deploy in other areas, other asset classes, to minimize some of that downside potential. So to make any actual difference, how much would you move from one area to another? Because, you know, if you trim it back 1%, then, you know, you're, I think it's window dressing. You know, you're probably not going to show any actual difference to a, a client's return. So how much percentage do you look at moving at any given time to make a difference? Sure. It depends on the portfolio and the parameters. So one of the things that we have to do is stay within certain risk categorizations. Um, so if a client says they're conservative, we can't say yes, but we love U.S. equities. We're going to go all U.S. equities because that would make them an aggressive investor. So we don't want to do that. So it does depend on the portfolio, but typically, you know, gradually, it's not all in one quarter, but, you know, you, you um, test the thesis and you prove it out. Uh, but it would be upwards of, of five to maybe a, a potentially 10% shifts between asset classes over time. Again, not all at once. You won't see it, you know, from one, one quarter to the next. But you, you gradually stage in to these positions over the period of, of a couple of quarters. And, you know, just for the listeners out there, this is what you're paying for. You know, when you're actually paying for an active manager looking after your money, these are the type of things that go on day by day. You know, the portfolio managers are looking after that segment of that they look after. And they know it inside out. They know every company like their own kids. And they know if it's overvalued or undervalued, growth oriented, you know, small cap, large cap, there's all these managers and they have their pulse on this. And yet, as a, sometimes we just look at a statement or clients will look at a statement, oh, it's down. 
Well, they didn't fail. The market's down. And I would suggest that, you know, Canada pension plan that runs billions of dollars. Theirs also is down at the same time. You know, but the difference is we as Canadians and again, North America in general, we have to look after retirement plans. There's not those pension funds as, as there used to be. Most people in the private sector are looking after their own investments, group RSPs. This is the, all the money they have. And, and this is their life savings. And I just want to just show, you know, all the work behind the scenes that, you know, you've mentioned, Philip, that goes on. It, it's, it's amazing. And yet still, it doesn't mean the market's not going to have a decrease in value. But you're looking at risk versus reward on all facets, I'm assuming. And could you just elaborate on that a bit more risk-related return? What does that mean? Certainly. So let, let's use the example of, of bonds versus, come back to U.S. equities, right? Because this is, this is the way that we look at it. Um, we Historically, the S&P 500 over any given calendar year ha, has been up by more than 20%, 30% of the time. So a third of the time you see a 20% plus gain. Now we think that's unusual, but it actually happens, you know, we'll say one out of every three years. One out of every three years, the S&P 500 is down, is negative. And then one out of every three years, it's between zero and 20%, right? So that's that's roughly the, the range of returns that you're looking at. Uh, what we wanna do is say, okay, in certain periods, the US equity market is more likely to be down than up. And you can measure this by where we are in the economic cycle, growth, inflation, and, and so on. And we have data that goes back to 1950 and we've modeled all this in. So today, for example, when we think about risk versus reward, we can look at the US and say, okay, in this environment that we're moving into, the base case is a return of say 5%. The bear case, you know, the, the, so the, the normal probability would be, yeah, we're gonna be up 5% over the next 12 months. But there's a, a greater risk because of the, where we are in the economic cycle that we could be down by 20. And my best case is that we're up by 10. So now my, you know, the risks are kind of skewed to the downside versus bonds. My base case is that we'll be up by five, same as equities. But my bear case is that we'll be down by five. So much less downside in bonds with, without really giving up much upside. So that is the shift from, say, U.S. equities into bonds that protects us a little bit more from the downside without actually giving up any of that upside potential. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Our special guest, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Our special guest, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net and you can call IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. We're going to talk a little bit about the insight that goes into financial planning where this information comes from yeah from the investment side you know for the, for the average client or the average person they see a line on the statement it might be called north american equity fund as an example and it would say okay well i guess it's invested in north american equities and that is generally all you need to know to be honest 
because you are now trusting your money with the manager of the North American Equity Fund. And you're saying, okay, what is going on? And what is the thinking? What are they doing? Where are they getting their information? They have full-time jobs looking after your money. Uh, what exactly is going, say, if you lift up the hood, what, what's going on in that engine there, Phil? Don, there's, there's a lot. I mean, if you've ever looked at a car engine, you see there's so many different parts and pieces to, to make that, uh, that thing run. And it's the same thing with uh, portfolios. Our portfolio managers that we work with, it starts with the process, meaning how do they define what is a good opportunity within their asset class? You know, if, if I'm going to own company A, what are the attributes and how do I analyze it and how do I define what it's worth so that it, it is adding value into the portfolio? And often, you know, the portfolio managers that we work with, they've developed a process over you know, decades of work and maybe they've inherited it from, from a mentor before. And so there's years and years that have been built into the process and, and, and it can look at so many different things, valuation, and, but there isn't just one way to look at valuation. You can look at valuation. So what is the true value of a stock? You can look at it in many, many different ways. And I mean, it, this is what makes a market in that not everyone is looking at companies the same way. What I might find attractive, you might not, because we're looking for different attributes. But um, basically, this is something that is going on all the time. Individuals that I work with and work with now, work with in the past, they come in every day, they print out their portfolio, see any changes on the portfolio in terms of their value, adjust those portfolios, maybe raise cash or, or put cash to work, shift from one sector to another because something is happening within energy or within industrials, whatever it might be. But it's a, a constant, it's a, a perpetual motion machine. No portfolio manager comes in January 1 says, I love it. I'll see you next year. <laughs> it, it's constantly moving to the change in the economy, the change in the market, the change in company fundamentals with the pursuit of finding the best relative opportunity. Well, wow, that's a mouthful. And, and again, there is a lot of work that goes on. But again, just as an example, um, let's say just so that we can get, you know, relate to something. What would be a company that may be sold right now to buy right now? Well, rather, sure. Rather than picking on a specific company, let's talk about individual sectors, right? So okay. I might sit there and say, well, you know what? Some tech companies remain fully valued and, and with growth slowing down and inflation remaining high, the valuation on tech companies is a lot lower today than where we were a year ago. So I might want to trim that tech company, but the miners are actually looking attractive. You know, we can see, you know, perhaps some upward pressure on, on some commodity prices, gold, maybe a gold miner. Right, where we have a thesis that gold prices are well below where they should be. We have a, an excellent operator that is producing at very, very low costs that will benefit greatly if the price of gold starts to go higher. So trim a tech, tech stock to buy gold based on the view over the course of the next, say, you know, year to three years. Okay, that's great. And that's just an ongoing. Now, that's simply the equity side. Never mind trying to figure out which countries to buy. Now we've gone down to the individual stocks. And this is what's going on. This is where the rubber meets the road. People are making decisions of selling something to buy something. And this goes on every day. Now, on the fixed income side, that's just as important because, you know, generally clients have between 10 and 40% of their portfolio in fixed income. And so, those 30-year bonds that were only paying 1.7% in January are now paying 3.2%. Uh, what are managers doing there now? 
Well, exactly. It's the same thing before when managers, we would say, wanted to be shorter duration, meaning wanted to have shorter term maturities in the portfolio because they're less interest rate sensitive, meaning the price is going to fall by less if interest rates go up. Now we're looking at interest rates with, you mentioned, 30 years, 10-year bonds paying you know, upwards of 4% or close to it very attractive yield saying, well, maybe you know, we think that we're near the peak in the interest rate cycle, and I want to take on some of that interest rate risk or uh, duration exposure. So shift from the lower maturity bond spectrum up to the uh, longer term maturity bond spectrum to capture those higher yields. And what about you know, higher yielding bonds, uh, you know, corporate bonds versus government bonds? Is there a shift there also? Well, absolutely. And here too, you know, high yield bonds are very attractive. So high yield bonds, uh, rightly or wrongly in the past have been called junk bonds, but really that's, that's not a fair assessment of them. But high yield, the high yield index in the US, for example, is yielding 9%. That's wow. very, very attractive. That's like equity like returns. And then you assess the risk saying, well, what's the probability that these companies are going to default on their bonds? Well, it's quite low. It's very, very low right now. So you have low risk, high yield, these are attractive bonds to be owning. And the nice part of this is bonds, stocks, globally, they're all part of your portfolio for the clients. And so these are all the decisions that basically when you lift up that hood, this is the engine. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox from Fox Group Private Wealth Management is here. Our special guest, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Our special guest, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7400. We've been looking at the last uh, quarter or such. Now it's time to take a peek into the crystal ball. Uh, Anybody want to take a stab at that? (laughs) Yes, and that's probably the question I get more than anything from clients. It says, okay, Don, I know it's down, but what do you see? Is it going to get better? You know, and I and I actually do have a crystal ball in my office because I always I can't figure out how to use it. So I always ask them to see if they can figure it out. I know uh, we all go through negative years. I think about one in every four and a half years are negative. This is lining up to be one of those years. What do, what do you see going forward? Recession, no recession, how big, uh, markets, volatility. How's your crystal ball there, Phil? Well, certainly, you know, I, I, I say my crystal ball is full of data. Uh, <laughs> so I'm trying to rely on all the data out there to, to really assess the environment. And I'll say this, to be honest, um, it looks like we are headed towards a recession. But I don't think that comes as a surprise to anyone. Uh, we've been hearing about it in the media all year that some some commentators have been saying we're in a recession. Well, we probably weren't, uh, but heading towards, yes, a lot of the data is suggesting that we're heading towards one. But Don, more importantly, is, is it going to be what we call a big R recession, you know, deep, prolonged, you know, lots of unemployment or a little R, which is you know, a blip. And a little R is, is uh, for those that remember, in 2001, at the end of the year in 2001, the National Bureau of Economic Research in the US came back and said, oh, by the way, there was a recession last March through November. And it was just like, oh, I didn't even know. 
because it, it wasn't a broad-based economic recession that we think of. Like when we think of recession, we think 2008, which is very bad, very prolonged and, and uh, massive unemployment in the United States. Uh, I don't think that's people the case. remember it clearly too. It wasn't that long ago, so it's still kind of you know we went through it, and they don't want to do it again. Exactly, and, and nor do I. I don't want to go through that again either. Uh, but it doesn't look like we're headed towards that. This is more one that we're going to see consumption tighten up a little bit. People are going to be spending a little bit less in Canada. It might be centered around housing a little bit more. In the U.S., it won't really feel like a recession, even though mathematically, I think it will be. Um, so what that means for the markets, though, so Don, this, here's the more important question. How do we make money from that? Well, with the markets tending to be forward-looking mechanisms, I would argue that a lot of the recession risk that we see in the coming, you know, say, six to nine months has already been priced in. The first leg down for the equity markets was because interest rates were going higher and, and we had higher inflation. The next leg down that we've seen through the second and third quarter I think is really pricing in the recession risk. So from here, the way I look at valuation, you know, the way I look at where we are in the economic cycle, um, the outlook isn't you know all rosy. But I do believe that equities will be higher twelve months from here than than uh, than lower. And that's at the end of the day, really what we're looking for. You know, we're going to have the ups and downs. Equities are inherent for this. You have no choice but to go through it. However. Real returns is really what everybody really wants. How much are you beating inflation based on your return? And if you go into GICs or fixed income investments, you'll be lucky to break even after after inflation, and particularly after tax, just inflation. But equities, um, you know, are around six percent long term over inflation. Is that about right? That's about right. Yeah, six percent long term over inflation, and and I would argue that while inflation is, is likely to be higher than average over the course of the next year to year and a half, it will be coming down. Plenty of signs that inflation is easing that will be at, at mid single digit inflation or lower um, by this time next year. And so for clients, again, it comes down to the process, the 10 year long-term boring process of going, th- looking at all data that you do and the portfolio managers are doing and then creating returns based on all this, the work behind it is not, as that one book said, is not lucky. You, you're not lucky in 10 years. You may be lucky in three months. You know, those Reddit investors, they might've got very lucky with that GameStop and, and other companies, but the process, and, and we're talking about clients' net worth. You know, Canada Pension Plan, like we talked about, the Teachers Pension Plan, all the managers running their funds, they're going through the exact same process, I'm sure, that that you and your managers. Is that not true? That's absolutely true. And what we're trying to do is just deliver uh, deliver a return commensurate to clients' goals. And we're not trying to to um, hit those those crazy home runs that you know where you double or triple your your money. That's very very difficult. And if you do that, you're going to end up winding losing more money um, than making. But we want to provide consistent. Yeah, uh, decent returns that line up with our clients' objectives and goals over the long term. And the best part is risk is always brought into it. Uh, you know, that conversation of, okay, you know, high yield bond, for example, earning 9% versus an equity investment, you know, one's got way less volatility than the other. And they're, one's earning 9%. So all of a sudden it's like, okay, 
you know what, as a manager, I'm going to throw more money in that area because it lines up with our client's objectives of trying to re get the least amount of risk for the most return. And this is very different than an exchange traded fund ETF that simply buys the market, goes up and down with the market, whatever it happens to do, it does. And you're riding that wave and you're hoping that you, that wave's okay, which was really easy, 2000, 2001. Not quite so easy now. And uh, in going forward, I'm assuming all these decisions um, and the process is, is probably at even higher alert right now. We're paying attention to the data. I'll put it that way. You know, we're always paying attention to the data, but um, right now it's a little bit more focused on the on the minimizing the downside as opposed to trying to just you know, maximize the upside. Well, it's very comforting as a client also, and uh, as in a financial planner overlooking many clients' uh, life savings to know that people like yourself are going through a very deliberate process. And this is why we have very good returns over the long haul risk-adjusted returns. And again, thanks so much for joining the show today, Philip. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management and our special guest, Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Thank you, gentlemen. Another great show. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.